Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, technical analysis plus what's in store for the markets in 2023. We'll take a deep dive into technical analysis and get an outlook for stocks, bonds, cryptocurrencies, commodities, and more. That's with our guest, Dave Lundgren, one of the leading technical analysts in the industry, as well as the founder and chief market strategist at Motor Capital Management and Research. Welcome to The Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, so this is our first recording of the new year, even though I know we're going to publish later in January. But Rusty, I wanted to ask, how are you feeling heading into 2023? Do you think the markets are going to continue the struggle of last year or do we see better times ahead? And I have a sub question here. How important is the calendar, really? Does it matter that we're in 2023? I mean, the same conditions apply, right? Well, let's hit the sub-question first. So calendar year should not return to individual investors, but it kind of does matter in the sense, one, professional investors are often have financial incentives based off of calendar year returns. So investment decision-making can be influenced by the calendar year. So, But really, for the end investor, it just really shouldn't matter. It really depends on your goals and objectives. As for the outlook coming into this year, I mean, the ultimate outlook, of course, is eventually the market's going to move higher again. But I think shorter term, we're still dealing with two big headwinds we've been dealing with for a while. And the first one, again, is, of course, don't fight the Fed when the Federal Reserve is raising short-term interest rates and financial conditions are tough. That's usually not a great environment for the stock market. And the second is don't fight the tape. The trend in the stock market remains bearish. And But, you know, that's my assessment of the trend. We need for this podcast, a top technical analyst to help us with the status of this don't fight the tape. And in this case, it's good friend and repeat guest, Dave Lundgren. All right. Well, let's bring him in. Dave Lundgren is founder and chief market strategist at Motor Capital Management and Research. Dave, welcome back to The Weighing Machine. Thanks so much, Rob. It's great to see you. It's great to meet you in person for the first time. You weren't on the podcast when when I was first on, so it's nice to see you for the first time. That's right. Nice to see you too. Well, Dave, as you know, as our first question is the walk-up song, and you had Rosalita from Bruce Springsteen the first time, a fine selection, wondering if you're going to stick with that today, or do you have a new one for our playlist? And before you answer, I uh, hope you have a good answer here, because when I was on your podcast, which we'll talk about later, I think you spent a fair <laughs> amount of time making fun of my walk-up song. So what is your walk-up song for this podcast? Well, I definitely dug deep to make sure that you didn't embarrass me on my selection. And I almost want to stick with Rosalita because it's just probably one of the greatest songs ever written. It's high energy and he's one of the greatest artists, but I'm going to go with something different. Uh, You've heard of The Hives, of course. Nice. So I'm going to go with TikTok Boom for a couple reasons. Great song. Yeah. You know the song? Okay. So obviously it's a very high energy song. And, you know, when I'm thinking about stepping out in for a walk-up song. I'm thinking of stepping into the UFC ring or something. So I want something that's high energy like that, right? But it's also TikTok boom, which is very contemporary in the sense that it's quite feasible that that, that social media 
platform might be blowing up this year with <laughs> with the uh, geopolitical unrest between China and the U.S. So we'll see what happens there. But it could be timely on two fronts. Nice. Well, you know, in our show notes, of course, we'll have a link to that, including the video, which is pretty cool. Nice, nice choice. I have to commend you guys, by the way, on your song list on Spotify. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. It's uh, seven hours long yeah. now. It keeps growing. I love it. <laughs> That's pretty yeah, eclectic it. mix. Yep, definitely. That's the other word. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Dave, so you have been in this industry for, I think, around 30 years, specializing in technical analysis strategies, which we're going to talk a lot about today. But for those who didn't tune into the last episode that you were on, including me, I wasn't there. Tell us more about your background and what you do in your current position. Yeah. So just briefly, I mean, I've been in this business for just over 30 years and my entire career has been technically oriented in one way or another. You know, my first job as a Pure technician was at Technical Data in Boston, which was a small technical shop, which has since morphed in its ownership to, uh, I think it's now, might be Reuters that owns it now. But that's also where I met Rusty. And I moved from Technical Data over to Fidelity to join their esteemed technical research group, which is probably one of the best technical research groups to be on, certainly in the buy side side of the business. And it was there when I really started to change my focus from where I was at Tech Data, which was more futures and fixed income in particular, some FX analysis to equities. And so since then, I've been pretty much an equity-focused investor ever since. And I started to get my early stage experience in actually investing for others at Fidelity in the sense that we managed a a pilot fund that was managed entirely using technical analysis. And then from there, I went through a, a hedge fund and then my own research business and then found my way to Wellington, which is the other great technical research group to be involved in on the buy side with the difference and very big difference being that on that team, we manage money. And we manage quite a bit of money for institutional investors purely using technical analysis. So I was there until just after COVID, where I decided to leave and take a year off, kind of press the refresh button. And so since then, I've launched my own private hedge fund. So it's long, short, again, purely technical trend following momentum, and also launched the research business that you mentioned earlier, which is motor capital management research, where I write research for registered investment advisors, you know, advisors of all types, individual investors and institutions as well. Awesome. All right. So as Rusty mentioned, you also launched a podcast in 2021, which you co-host. Tell us more about Fill the Gap. What's the goal or the mission of the show? So Fill the Gap is the official podcast of the CMT Association. And The whole objective of the podcast is to really highlight the value of technical analysis, the value of the CMT Association itself, but then also to really highlight and spotlight, whether it be investors or analysts who have their CMT charter, who are really thriving with that charter. And so all of the guests on the podcast, one of which has been Rusty, was a great episode. All of the guests have their CMT charter. And so it's just a conversation around of course, technical analysis, but how to link link that style of analysis with fundamentals and you know talking about markets and different indicators and books that have been published by CNTs and things like that. So we publish it once a month. We just completed our second year. Tim Hayes was our last guest of 2022, and we're you know launching into our third year. Awesome. Nice. Well, Dave, in this podcast, we're going to talk about a couple of primary topics. First, investment philosophy, and the second is market outlook. And first, let's talk about philosophy. So we've already mentioned you're a leading technical analyst, and of course, your podcast is dedicated to technical analysis. One thing you didn't mention is you're also an award-winning teacher of technical analysis as well. (laughs) So how do you define technical analysis? 
So there's a lot of ways to define it. You asked me this in the last time I was on. And I think at the end of the day, it's it's the study of price. And what people don't appreciate is that in price, there's a lot of wisdom. And what I mean by that is that when you look at the performance of money managers over time, what we find, unfortunately, is most money managers are schooled in the principles of fundamental analysis, capital asset pricing theory, dividend discount models, and other traditional fundamental analysis techniques. But what we find is that the vast majority, and unfortunately by that, I mean almost 90% of active managers underperform their benchmark using these tools that they learn in business school. So obviously there's nothing wrong with these people. I mean, they're very smart people. I had the great opportunity to work with many of the, some of the smartest money managers in the business and they're wonderful people. They're very smart. I learn a lot from them, but at the end of the day, they still struggle to beat their benchmark. Well, what's the benchmark? Well, benchmark is a price. It's the price of the S&P. And so at some point we have to ask ourselves, if this price thing that just kind of oscillates back and forth on a chart, like any other price series, is so hard to outperform over time. Maybe there is wisdom in that price. Maybe that price knows something we don't know. And so technical analysis is all about just checking everything we think we do know about what's going on in the world at the door, which essentially means checking our ego at the door and just ask the market, what do you think? And the market tells you what it thinks vis-a-vis trend. And I like to say the market is the best fundamental analyst on the planet. And so it behooves us to just kind of like quiet our minds and listen to what the market's trying to tell us. The best way to do that is to just identify trend change and to stay with trend as long as trend changes and goes in the other direction. And obviously you can conduct that analysis, Rusty, when you and I were at technical data, we would look at one minute charts and five minute charts and things like that. So obviously I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you step out into the institutional money management world, where you're trying to capture trends that ideally will last for weeks, if not months, you're obviously looking at much longer term charts. So we're not talking about trend change on the five minute chart. We're talking about trend change on charts that are driven by fundamentals, which is typically the weekly and monthly chart. And so you can conduct traditional technical analysis, trend following momentum on those longer term charts in an effort to capture what's essentially the wisdom of the market, which is what Charles Dow talked about all the way back in the late 1800s. So really it's just a study of price, but the reason it's important is because that price is pretty hard to beat. There's a lot of wisdom embedded in that price. And I'm a pure technician. I'm a pure trend follower. That's all I do. I don't really look at fundamentals. I'm not necessarily advocating that other investors do that. But uh, if you're a pure fundamental investor struggling to keep pace with the benchmark, my advice to you is to hire the market as one of your fundamental analysts because it's a pretty good one. You know, kind of related to that. So choosing an investment philosophy according to your temperament, personality is so key. In your opinion, Mm. what types of investors does technical analysis work best for? And I guess sort of related to that too, kind of a follow-up question too is, you know, why why should investors just use technical analysis? I think you sort of answered that, but like who is technical analysis for and why should people use it? It's funny. I always say that the difference between a technician, technical investor, and a fundamental investor, oftentimes it's ego and the willingness of a technician to just literally check their ego at the door and listen to what the market's saying. When I actually think about that, it's I almost feel like I'm misleading in the sense that technicians don't have egos because there's a lot of type A personalities in the technical business. But it requires you to be a successful technician to be willing to just listen to what the market's saying and not develop narratives and not have this belief that I have to be right in order to make money. Because you don't have to be right to make money as a technician. You just have to be on the right side of price trend. And that oftentimes some of the best trades I've ever made were either in things that I didn't even know what they were, like Bitcoin, 
or when I made that first purchase or short sale in that stock, I just felt like I was wrong. But that's where the the strategy was leading me. And so I did it. And you know, lo and behold, it ends up being one of the best trades that I put on. But if you're following your process and just check your ego at the door and check that sort of mental baggage at the door and just follow the process, some pretty good, great trades can unfold for you. So can you walk us through, you've mentioned some of the strengths of technical analysis, but can you kind of summarize those for us and also talk about some of the weaknesses? Yeah, I actually say that the weaknesses of technical analysis are actually their strengths. So it's kind of a fine line there. But one of the great strengths of technicals is that you can cover anything. I mean, I just mentioned Bitcoin and Tesla, and then, you know, those are obviously both technology oriented, but one's an asset class. So at least some would like you to think so. Another one is a very um, hard to pin down fundamental story. But as a technician, I can follow that as easily and adeptly as I can follow the price of pork bellies soybeans, interest rate futures, and foreign exchange. So that's one of the great strengths of it. But at the same time, that strength is also one of its weaknesses. And so you see a lot of technicians become uh, jack of all trades, master of none. So that's one of the weaknesses is that you can inundate yourself with so many trends. In my process, I follow 2,000, 2,200 stocks in the US, about 1,200 ETFs, about 40 commodities. And so if you don't have a structured process to manage that data, you can almost become paralysis by analysis. So that would be one. And then the other is, which is probably one of the more significant drawbacks or challenges with technicals is that there are so many indicators that you can use that when I first started in the business, I used to put indicators on a chart. And by the time I was done dressing up the chart with indicators, I couldn't even see the price. And so what I have found is that the further you get away from price by doing this indicator analysis, the further you're getting away from the truth. And so what I've learned over time is to really restrict my analysis to certain timeframes using certain indicators and as much as possible, keep it as simple as possible because technical analysis absolutely is a rabbit hole. You can go down into some pretty dark caves with so many indicators and asset classes and insecurities that you can cover. Yeah. So to kind of summarize, if I heard it right, so like three strengths that pop out from what you said about technical analysis. First of all, there's a certain humility to it. And again, great investors do have humility. There's confidence, of course, but they're humble about their market assessment and they can change their mind. It's disciplined. So discipline, of course, is always a key to investor success. And then I like to think that the third strength is really risk management. It lets you know when you should get out of the position. And again, it's, it's ego gets in the way of people. But the weakness, and I think you just hit on this a couple of times, is that there's a lot of different schools of thought when it comes to technical analysis. So my question to you is really talking about these different schools of thought within technical analysis, could you identify like just, there must be just a certain number of primary branches of technical analysis and who are sort of the key teachers or techs for each of these respective schools of thought within technical analysis? Yeah, like in fundamentals, there's basically two ways to invest. There is growth and value. Of course, there's iterations of each, but at a very high level, that is the case. And I think in technicals, you can do the same thing. There's momentum investing and then there's mean reversion. So it's literally one does the opposite of the other. And the truth of the matter is that they both actually work quite well. So you can, there's an indicator called an RSI momentum oscillator, and it just oscillates back and forth on the chart, indicating overbought and oversold conditions. And you can actually backtest that indicator. And it's actually quite powerful identifying trading opportunities within the context of a trend. I personally don't because I'm a trend follower. So I'd be more like in the growth camp if I'm a fundamental investor. I'm more kind of like mapped to that type of analysis. Much like a fundamental growth investor doesn't pay attention to value because those are the situations that are often the most explosive are the ones that are have great fundamentals, but they're expensive. And a value manager would never touch them because they're expensive. 
for that very same reason, that's why growth managers don't pay attention to valuation in that same light. I, as a trend follower, don't really pay much attention, if any at all, to momentum, meaning oscillation and overbought and oversold conditions. Because at the end of the day, if I buy a stock, I want it to be overbought forever. <laughs> and so if I'm a mean reversion investor trying to sell things that are overbought, that would be regardless of whether it's trending or not. So if I'm long something as a trend follower, like I said, I want it to get as overbought as possible and stay there as for as long as possible, which is the exact opposite of what a mean reversion trader, you know, looks for. So at the end of the day, you touched on it earlier, Rusty, where it really you have to map your personality to the proper strategy. And so that's where I've kind of settled in. I'm a much better trend follower than I am a mean reversion investor. And I think that's one of the most important steps in investing is map yourself to the proper strategy. Yeah. Okay. So my next question is kind of just related to what you said, but so I think having worked with and analyzed a lot of different managers who use technical analysis, particularly trend following, you know, given that the rules based, those strategies basically perform as they're always expected to do. I mean, it's rules based, right? But many investors in those strategies have a difficult time because right? I don't think they really understand trend following. So how would you describe it to somebody if uh, who's really interested in investing in one of your strategies? or a trend follower, obviously you need to explain to him or her why your strategy works, but how do you explain when it doesn't work? When does trend following not work? So that's a really critical point, not just for you as the portfolio manager, but for the investor in the fund, because the investor in the fund needs to know what the circumstances might be that your strategy doesn't work. And Rusty, you know this better than anybody having interviewed probably thousands of investors, portfolio managers over time. Every portfolio manager and every strategy is going to struggle. Nothing works forever. The last strategy that worked forever, that portfolio manager went to jail. So that's just not the nature of portfolio management. All strategies go through periods of winning and losing. The most important point is that when your strategy is not working, can the portfolio manager explain to you why it's not working? And was it something that the portfolio manager explained to you ahead of time as to one of those scenarios where you might find the strategy struggle? And if you find yourself at a point where a strategy is struggling and the portfolio manager can't really explain to you why, then you have a problem. But if it's a scenario that was outlined ahead of time, that this is one of those scenarios where you can anticipate the trend following won't work, or it might struggle for a period, and it starts to happen, in many ways, you should actually think about that as an opportunity. If you really believe in the strategy, those drawdown periods is when you should actually add to the strategy. If you believe it works over time, and the reason it's not working this time is perfectly within the realm of expectations, that's actually when you add to it. So the periods where trend following tends to not work is when the market's not trending. So that sounds facetious, but it's true. But the point being there is that we especially know now that markets trend in both directions, trend higher and trend lower. So today in a bear market, the worst one since the GFC, trend followers should be doing well right now because the market is trending. And so depending on your mandate, you're either doing well because you're in defensive stocks because they're trending relative to the market, or you've raised cash because most stocks are in a downtrend, or if it's within the scope of your mandate, you're also mitigating downside because you are short those stocks that are in a downtrend. So whenever the market's trending, that's when trend following tends to really thrive. And fortunately, that is most of the time. But when the market is transitioning from one trend to the other, or just in a general pause, either are no trends, that's when you can see trend following momentum and those types of styles struggle. But that's also when you see that earlier strategy that I mentioned, uh, mean reversion, that's when it can tend to do quite well. So for advisors and investors who are interested in using technical analysis strategies, do you have any rules of thumb on how much of an overall portfolio should be dedicated to those kinds of strategies like trend following strategy? 
So in terms of an allocation mm-hmm. to trend following, the way I would say it is that if you look at the long-term alpha generation of whether it be trend following, momentum, I guess we can use them sort of interchangeably relative to growth and relative to value. What we find is that the performance of momentum and trend following relative to the growth style of investing over time is that momentum or trend following does better than growth, even though they're highly correlated. And at the same time, both growth and trend following momentum are are uncorrelated to value. So the way I actually think about it is you should always have some allocation to value. No, Rusty didn't make me say that, (laughs) but I, I, I do think you should always have some allocation to value. But if I'm thinking about allocating between a pure growth style and somebody who uses momentum, that's the aspect of my allocation that I would think about replacing. Diversifying between growth investing and pure trend following or momentum investing. So that would be one way I think about it. The other way I think about it is if I'm a fundamental investor, how much of a influence should I allow trend following and technical analysis to have to have in my portfolio management? And I can only tell you that I've seen some really good fundamental managers through my career become great portfolio managers by incorporating some very simple trend elements into their process. And so their entire portfolio is in keeping with their fundamental thesis in terms of what they philosophically believe as a stock selection process can generate alpha beyond the market performance. But also at the same time, every stock that they buy within those guidelines has a positive trend, is outperforming the market. That way there, they don't get tied up in between those stocks that they believe should beat the market because they fundamentally check all the boxes philosophically with their beliefs. But on the one hand, you have some that are trending now and others that are in a downtrend. All too often, what I've seen in history with the people that I've worked with as fundamental managers trying to get them to see the value of technical is that at the margin, if they see two stocks that have the same compelling sort of fundamental story, but one's a lot cheaper, they'll favor the one that's cheaper. But at the same time of doing that, more often than not, they're actually buying the one that's in a downtrend, regardless of the fact that it's in a downtrend, the fact that it's cheaper is what draws them to that. So what I've encouraged portfolio managers to do is to try to tie these three things together and try to find companies that you can defend fundamentally in your philosophy that are the cheapest within the framework that you're looking at and have a positive trend and are outperforming the market. If you can do that over time, I've just seen some good fundamental managers become great portfolio managers when they incorporate trend and uh, relative performance into their stock selection. I want to piggyback on that just for a second. And uh, my thought is when it comes to trend following strategies, again, I think that when somebody's blending a portfolio with different investment strategies, they should give strong consideration to some allocation to trend following. The historical evidence is just so compelling, but also particularly in environments, historically trend following has done really well in higher inflationary environments, for instance, that the thing about trend following, and we've kind of touched upon this earlier, it's sort of a wild bucking Bronco. A lot of investors can't really ride because its performance can be pretty extreme relative to other strategies. So. My kind of thought is if you're a financial advisor or working with an investor, start small with an investor and get them used to it, kind of get them through you know different market environments so they kind of get a feel of how it works. And then once they get comfortable with it, increase that position because I think ultimately, if history is any sort of indication what it'll look like, it will enhance their risk-adjusted performance over time to increase that allocation. So sorry, I just jumped in on that too. I had to give you a chance to get a drink of water there, Dave, anyway. All right. Well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here then. 
So you have a couple credentials after your name, Dave, CFA, as well as CMT. So if CFA, of course, stands for Chartered Financial Analyst, but the CMT credential might be a little less familiar to our audience. Can you tell us more about it as well as the CMT Association? Yeah, so the CMT charter is very similar to the CFA charter in the sense that where the CFA, there were a lot of people, for instance, that published reports and notes and things like that on the web with fundamental opinions. And a lot of it, as you can come to appreciate, it's just not very well thought out. It's just people spewing what they think they know. And so one way for potential investors to distinguish one type of, I guess, research provider from another is, do they have their CFA? Because the CFA indicates that they went through a very rigorous three-year program to demonstrate that they understand the importance of the various ways to truly generate alpha using fundamental analysis over time. And that's what the CFA program is all about. So it helps distinguish one from the other. And the main thing is that the CFA, that's the value of the CFA charter, is that it distinguishes one from the other. And I would say that's the same thing with the CMT charter in the sense that to the extent that there are people on the web spewing fundamental views, there are 10 times more (laughs) spewing technical views, which is kind of alludes to what I said earlier about the willingness or the ability to be sort of a jack of all trades, master of none. So if you can look at a chart, you can have an opinion. Whereas if you look at a balance sheet, you may not have an opinion. You at least need some knowledge. So what we find on the web is that there are a lot of people just spewing opinions about charts that are just really unfounded. And if you actually dig into their their perspectives, there's a lot of, we'll call it shaky analysis being done. And so the benefit of the CMT is that it's a charter that demonstrates to the potential allocator that this money manager has gone through, once again, a very rigorous three-year program to demonstrate that they have the aptitude and ability to execute the strategies that actually do demonstrate alpha generation over time. So that's the benefit of the two charters. But you'll notice in my name, like on my business card on my website, it says David Lundgren, CMT, CFA. So I'm one of the few people that actually put my CMT first. And that's very intentional because that to me matters. In other words, trend matters way more than fundamentals as far as I'm concerned. So of the two charters, there's no question that I value the CMT charter more because it just aligns more so with my philosophy investing. But that is the benefit of the CMT charter is that it helps to distinguish one person's spewing an opinion from another. So the CMT Association is a nonprofit organization that advocates for the technical analysis style of investing. So it's been around since the 1970s, actually. It's about to celebrate its 50th anniversary. And you know, it's got a great outreach program into the industry, advocating within the practitioners, as well as a great outreach program into the academia as well. It has an academic partnership program in which it attempts to get the technical analysis body of knowledge instilled into the academic community so that folks, much like how I taught at Brandeis for five years, can learn how to invest technically and sort of fill in that gap that they're missing in their body of knowledge as they go through school. So it's an organization that I'm proud to be a board member of, and they do a lot of work, nonprofit, volunteer work, in a way that I think is really important because it's, again, as I demonstrated earlier, clearly there's a big hole missing, or there's a big hole in the body of knowledge of most investors, which I think contributes to the difficulty that most investors have keeping pace with the benchmark. And to me, in my opinion, obviously it's biased, but I think that hole can be filled with a better understanding of technical analysis. And that's what the whole CMT charter and the CMT association is all about. So the CMT Association helps fill the gap. Yes, it does. Great. So one more question on the CMT just real fast is that, of course, you have a big annual CMT symposium. Can you give us a quick tease on that? Yeah, we have one every year, actually. We have one in New York and we have one also in Asia, which we just had. So this one coming up in New York is the 50th anniversary. So this is a big one, to say the least. And so the great thing about this 
upcoming symposium is that some of the greatest technicians in the business that have actually been around since the founding of the CNT Association will be there presenting and receiving awards. So whether it's Ralph Akapur, who was one of the founding founders of the CNT Association, we'll have uh, Tom DeMarc, Jerry Parker, who's one of the great trend followers of our day. And of course, somebody like Bob Prechter, who we don't often see get out and attend symposiums or do presentations, he'll be there. So the opportunity to get out and meet some of these people and to exchange ideas with hundreds of fellow CMT charter holders and just members of the association is going to be great. And I think one of the highlights is on Thursday night, we go to the New York Stock Exchange floor and we have a big gala event as well. So it's it's a two-day event with a lot of social activities and some really high high-level discussions around technicals and some of the recent innovations that have been taking place, a lot of awards that are being granted. And that happens every year, but this is the 50th year. So it's going to be a really great event. Wow. So we'll definitely put that in the show notes. You know, Bob Prechter, I haven't seen him present in a while, but always very inspiring. And the first symposium I ever went to, which was a long time ago, I actually had lunch with Ralph Ancampora. So his personality is incredibly large. I mean, in a good way. I just was so intimidated. (laughs) He's such a legend. And anyway... We're going to talk markets now. And of course, you publish a regular commentary and you have this regular write-up called Charting My Interruption. Did I get that right? You did. Yep. Yeah, CMI. Awesome. Yep. So the last one, at least before this interview, was called 20 Charts to Watch in 2023. So what were your top charts, in your opinion, from that commentary? Yeah. So the Charting My Interruption is actually, that's a free research note that I publish once a week. Anybody can go to the website and sign up for that. So that's prop, that's the one you're talking about. In that note, I highlighted one of the 27 charts, actually, that I published in the, the following week's note to clients. But that particular note covered or highlighted what I think are some pretty important relative performance relationships. So when you think about bull markets, they're typically led by high beta, growth-oriented type sectors, and you tend to see economically sensitive aspects of the markets performing well. And that chart that you're referring to basically showed three relationships that were unfortunately pointing in the wrong direction. So it's when you compare something like consumer discretionary, which is a very cyclically oriented sector to consumer staples, that's a ratio you can chart. That trend is down and to the right by most measures. The other one was high beta versus low volatility. You'll see that all three of these relationships move in the same direction and they move in the same direction as the market. And so the second one being uh, high beta versus low volatility. When low volatility is outperforming, you know you're in a bear market. That trend is reflecting what's happening in the market broadly as well. And then the third one is copper versus gold. So copper is obviously a very economically sensitive commodity. Gold is more of a safe haven. So in strong, robust bull markets that are driven by strong economic activity, you typically see copper outperforming gold. In this case right now, it's actually been in a a bear market for quite a while. All three of these trends actually started to turn lower in mid to late 2021. So as is often the case, the market changes its direction one trend at a time, one relationship at a time. And we know that the market itself peaked in basically in, in January of 2022. But these relationships began peaking out in early to mid-2021, giving us a pretty good heads up as to what was coming at the broader market level. So I think those kinds of relationships are the ones that are really important because I guess anything's impossible and maybe one day we'll have a bull market with those things continuing to trend lower. And if we do, I'll go with it. That's the nature of trend following. But um, typically, these trends need to be engaged to the upside in order for there to be a sustained, healthy bull market. And as those charts, plus the other 20 that I showed, they're certainly not aligned yet for a bull market. 
Yep. All right. So my first question, he basically answered that, which is sort of the general outlook on the stock market. It sounds it's still cautious and defensive, you know, sort of uh, don't fight the trend in it or don't fight the tape and it's still bearish. How yeah. often, and I know you use a disciplined multi-time frame approach, but how often does your positioning change in your portfolio? I mean, I know it. the answer is it depends on market conditions, but is there sort of a rough right. rule of thumb? Like you go from positive to negative, like X amount of times a year. Or can you even say that? So no, I would say that I don't go from positive to negative, probably maybe one or two times a year. Again, because I'm trying to capture those trends that are durable. And those durable trends are the ones that are driven by fundamentals. In order to capture those trends, you do need to step out to the the monthly. And I even look at the quarterly charts. So that's really where my focus is. And because that's where my focus is, my broad allocation to risk doesn't change. Where things can change more frequently is beneath the surface. So I might be I might be 120% long in a particular window of time, but beneath the surface, that exposure could be changing depending on what's trending versus not trending. But what I do find is that when the market is trending, turnover drops quite a bit. And when it's in that period where the market's sort of non-trending, transitioning, like 2021 was a great example, as strong as that market looked, it was actually a massive bear market going on beneath the surface. So in those kinds of environments, the turnover can be quite a bit higher. So... As you're looking ahead on the stock market, what is your sort of favorite equity sector that you think you're going to be watching in the next year? So I guess for me, if you, know, if you look at history, what tends to drive price over time is growth in fundamentals. So in the short term, 50% of what happens to a stock is expansion or contraction in valuation. But when you start looking out three, five, and 10-year periods, almost 70 to 80% of what happens to an individual stock is determined by what happens to its top line revenue growth. So the ones that have the highest revenue growth are the ones that are the stocks that I really try to find myself identifying with positive trend. So rather than say sector, I'd rather say stocks that are displaying the greatest growth because that's what's going to work over time. So that may end up being energy. So if you like today, if you were to take say looking at 2000 stocks and you try to identify all those stocks that have revenue growth above 50% right now, you'd be surprised to find out that most of them are energy. So what is growth? Well, growth is, you can capture growth by looking at a growth ETF. Well, if most of the growth is taking place in the energy sector, but the growth ETFs are underperforming, how is that a disconnect? Well, it's because the top line revenue growth has morphed to other sectors. It's now in energy and, and potentially other other sectors, and it's no longer in those those companies that demonstrated growth over the past three to five years, but the ETFs still own them. So I'm more focused on trying to identify where that growth is coming from. So on the one hand, I'm going to always try to morph the portfolio towards growth that's outperforming. But I mentioned this in the last time I was on, Rusty, but I, I think we're starting to see it where we're starting to see Europe in Japan are actually really starting to come into that leadership spot. So I've been spending a lot of time trying to identify companies that are going to benefit from the potential change in regime from disinflation or deflation to inflation. And of course, the two economies on the planet that have been really shackled by deflation have been Europe and Japan. And with this big sea change in central bank policy, as they try to quell inflation, nonetheless, we are seeing inflation. And as a consequence of that, we're seeing, we're seeing some pretty explosive moves, particularly in Japanese banks. And it's conceivable that that's where the, the leadership is morphing. So one area that I'm really focused on for the coming year is the possibility that Europe and Japan finally come into leadership after being absent for 
at least a decade, if not more, particularly in Japan's case. Yep. I think that is a surprise to many investors right now as we're recording this when it comes to short-term relative performance, you know, things like Europe are outperforming. I think that does shock people. Okay, some more outlooks. And again, so even though professionally we cut our teeth in the markets, again, back at Tech Data or Thomson Reuters, even though before that we'd read dozens of books and studied and did a bunch of different stuff, but we really cut our teeth analyzing the bond markets and writing that commentary every 20 minutes. <laughs> Do you still follow professionally the bond markets? Do you have an outlook? I know you're running equity money, but what is your outlook for the bond markets? I do, but I want to just go back and highlight what you just said. The fact that we wrote a comment on the bond market every 20 minutes. I know. <laughs> that's insane. Is there really that much to say? But again, that's a strength of technicals. I remember that day when the Fed raised rates 75 basis points. I still remember that day vividly, how shocking it was since 94. Yeah. 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 That gave you something to write about for years. <laughs> exactly. I'm still talking about it now. <laughs> Here we go, right? But yeah, of course, I follow interest rates very closely because they do drive relationships within the market. And one very simple thing that advisors can do is they can chart the TIP ETF relative to the TLT ETF to get a sense for the market's expectations for inflation. And that's another relationship that has been a very good tell for the various swings to and fro that we've had in the equity market over the past 10 or 15 years. So interest rates are very important. I think this big move we saw higher in the 10-year yield through that 40-year downtrend in rates, basically going through 3%. I think that, among several other things, was a very key driver in what we're seeing take place in these mega cap, formally, if not still, very overvalued growth stocks. So rates are really critical in my analysis. I don't buy or trade fixed income any longer, but I do study it because you know it's a critical input. How about the commodity markets and particularly gold? I guess I don't have a strong view on it. I just kind of a mess. <laughs> That's not to say that I won't buy it at some point, but as far as my process goes, when I'm looking at trend in higher timeframes, trying to capture fundamental trends, there just typically aren't very strong, explosive, durable fundamental trends within the gold space, particularly at the gold equity level. So I certainly don't see any evidence that it's going to be leadership this year. That may be the case that it will be at some point and I will buy it, but I can see the appeal of owning gold today just because of all the uncertainty and what the Fed is doing and what's happening in Europe and everything else. But that would be an example of me imposing my opinion and my concerns and my fears upon the market as opposed to just saying, well, wait a minute, what is the market saying? And what I find more interesting happening in the market today then what gold is doing is the fact that, you know, industrials as a sector bottomed in relative performance right when the bear market started. And when the bear market really started to accelerate lower this year, that's when relative performance of industrials really started to accelerate higher and basically broke a two-year downtrend. That to me is more important than what gold is doing. The fact that uh, materials are now at about a 10 or 12-year relative performance downtrend and potentially set to break through that relative performance downtrend, much like I think Rusty, last time I was on, we talked about how energy was breaking a similar downtrend. So that's since happened. It's been a great performer since then in materials or on the brink of doing the same thing. Financials may be on the brink of breaking out as well. I already talked about financials in Japan, but financials in Europe may be breaking some pretty important relative performance downtrend. So on the one hand, I see the value and the reasons for why we would talk about gold and whatnot. But I just think in terms of if we're just going to really execute the process, let's just look at what is happening. And that's where I see better opportunities for the coming year. 
Yeah. Hey, on the last podcast, you referred to this a couple of times. One question I did ask you, I want to say more than once, was about Bitcoin and your outlook for it. Yeah. And so I want to know your outlook on Bitcoin, but also on the topic of cryptocurrencies. You did also publish a recent Charting My Interruption article called You Just Need FTX, which is a good yeah. article. What were your key points in that piece? Well, the whole takeaway on that was I was just kind of tired of hearing about all the, you know, what the smartest people in the room were doing. And this was before FTX blew up and the smartest people in the room, and despite the fact that that whole space was in a downtrend for at least a year, the smartest people in the room were buying it. And right up to a month before the whole FTX exchange was discovered to be a fraud, he was being referred to as the second coming of JP Morgan or the modern day Warren Buffett. And they were you know, hoisting all this praise upon him and everything else. And a month later, the whole thing goes bust. So the point of that post was, would I rather be called a simple trend follower or the smartest guy in the room. And without question, hands down, I would rather be referred to as a simple trend follower because simple trend following not only had you out of that space for at least a year, while all the other classic indications of a bubble top are taking place, and I highlight them throughout that post. And again, this is free research on the website. So if you go to the website, you can access this report that Rusty's referring to. But while you know Tom Brady was you know, sponsoring the FTX and was doing these commercials for the FTX exchange, and when the FTX took on naming rights for a stadium and Facebook changed their name to Meta and Square changed their name to Block, these are all examples of bubble activity. All these things happened in the year 2000, the year 1999. So the point is, is that all those things happened, a whole space peaked out from a trend perspective. And if it was in your mandate, which it is in mine, you actually short that space. At the same time, the smartest people in the room were buying it. So this is not at all saying that these aren't the smartest people in the room. I will tell you, hands down, if you put me in a room with them, they're a thousand times smarter than I am. That's not the point. The point is that even the smartest people in the room can get duped by these kinds of scenarios, particularly when it's in a bubble sort of like euphoric moment and people are competing with each other and emotions take over. And we're seeing lots and lots of examples of it now where the analysis that was being done was really loose. It's sort of like the lending standards in the housing bubble in 2004, five, and six. If you had a pulse, you got a home. It's kind of like if you had a pulse, you got money in this latest VC boom that we just went through. You know, if we hear the story of it, he was doing Zoom meetings in his shorts playing video games at the same time. He's, I mean, those are things that should never happen, but they happen. And all of it happened while that whole space was cratering from a trend perspective. Yep. So I would rather be a simple trend follower than the smartest guy in the room any day of the week. So you're calling Bitcoin 100,000? Is that what I heard? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I heard that in there. <laughs> Where's the decimal on that 100,000? Because if it's 0. 0.1000, maybe I am. <laughs> So do you have a quick view on Bitcoin before we go to our closing questions? So I will tell you this. So like the thing with these post-bubble scenarios is that by the time everybody can tell you what's wrong, you should probably start to look for evidence that it's going the other way. So when, when the exchange was found to be a fraud, that's when Bitcoin really dropped quite a bit. It broke through 18,000. But since then, as all the news has been coming out and all the the really ugly headlines and the lax fundamental work that was being done was coming out and all the list of people who we now found took you know, several hundred million dollar positions in this exchange. That news is now starting to come out and Bitcoin has actually gone sideways. I find that pretty interesting. It's still in a downtrend, but it's not going lower. That could be important for the next year. All right. 
Well, let's switch gears to some of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests here on the show. And the first is, so professionally, you have been surrounded, of course, in the last 30 years by incredible resources in terms of people, tools, and ideas. So considering all of that that you have around you and all of that experience, what is currently your favorite investment idea? Who momentum investing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I kind of already pointed, if you're asking me like, what's my best investment idea for 2023? You know, Rusty asked me a similar question last time. And I said it was the XSVM, which was the ETF that combines small cap value and momentum. It's actually done pretty well. I think it's down only a little bit since then, which translates into pretty strong relative performance. But when I made that recommendation, I said, understand that the next time you have me on, or maybe the next time we talk, I could have been stopped out and you could still own it because I told you to buy it, right? With that one caveat, I think I already detailed a couple of them that I think are really things to watch for the coming year. And that would be Europe, inflation-sensitive sectors, Japan, Japanese banks. I still like that XSVM because it has momentum in it. It's got value. It's small caps. So that combination, I still think if we're in a post-bubble in that sort of mega cap growth theme, then that suggests that mega cap and large cap is going to suffer at the hands of a resurgent small cap and mid cap factor. So put small cap together with value, which also would stands to benefit if growth is suffering and momentum, which is going to help benefit anything that has it. That should be a good ETF as well. But all of that sort of value and momentum should also translate into Europe and in Japan as well. You know, the next question is, one thing I've always admired about you, Dave, is your discipline. I mean, early in our career, I remember like if I was reading a book on the markets and, you know, some sort of philosophy book and I put it down, I was thinking like, Dave's probably still reading. Or when I did my morning <laughs> push-ups and I got doing a whole bunch and I got done, I figured, you know, Dave's probably still doing push-ups. And then on weekends, <laughs> when I was doing my Saturday reading, when I finished doing my reading, I figured you were still studying charts. So discipline has always been something I've always admired in you. And in turn, you're able to maintain a high level of energy. So I want to know currently, what are your practices? How do you maintain your energy and the ability to perform at a high level? Well, that's funny you should say that because you've just exposed that we have both been chasing our tails because (laughs) I have that same conversation with myself. Like, I'm going to do one more push-up because I know Rusty's (laughs) doing one more push-up. So that's kind of... uh, I wish you didn't say that because now I don't know what I'm going to do. But By the way, uh, I'm only doing 3,000 a day, so I'm sure you're still beating that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Excuse me while I do some more push-ups. Um, <laughs> I think the most important thing is to disconnect and unplug yourself from the market. So one of the things that I've done more recently, actually, and it's benefited me greatly, is I would usually get up early in the morning and work out and to try to set the stage for a great high-energy day by working out first. and what I've actually changed is I get up at 5.30 and I try to get to the office around 6 to 6.30 and it gives me almost three hours of work where nobody's pinging me, the markets aren't moving, I'm not doing any trading or investing. I'm just really, I'm not following up on emails. I'm just researching yesterday's price action. And I can do that in the solitude of the office where I'm usually the only one in the office for at least an hour. And that allows me to really disconnect and have a peace of mind without all those other you know sort of interruptions that take place throughout the day. So that's most recently has probably been the biggest change that I've sort of introduced to my daily routine. And then right around 10.30 or 11, I then go work out. And then I come back to the office and I I check out at 5, 5.30 and be done with it. But beyond that, I would say that the most important thing is regards to checking out and kind of unplugging yourself is to get outside and do something, whether it be like myself, I'm skiing, golfing, hiking, walking, doing that kind of thing. 
it's kind of like refreshing the system. I actually just recently started trying to learn how to play guitar. So it's all these things that take your mind away from investing. And what I have found is that when you come back to investing, it's almost like a clean slate and you see things different and you see things in a cleaner perspective. And the main thing is disconnect is off, find ways to disconnect from the markets. All right. Well, in your career, Dave, you have been around a lot of successful people who have helped you get to where you are today, as we all have, of course. So tell us who some of those people are, the people that you're professionally thankful for, mentors, anybody like that. Well, we got one on the podcast here, Rusty. He's been uh, somebody that is, although we're peers, I've looked up to him many times. I mean, he's one of the great investors of our generation. So I, I would absolutely put Rusty up there. But two people that I would also put up there, I'm sure Rusty would as well. And th- those are two of our early bosses in the business at Technical Data. The two gentlemen that hired me at Tech Data were Jim Donnelly, who unfortunately recently passed, surprisingly, which was awful. But And then Joel Marver. These are the two gentlemen who took me in to Tech Data. My first job as a technician, I managed to kind of BS my way through the uh, <laughs> the interview process and somehow got hired. But these two went on to teach me everything they know. And uh, you know, Jim Donnelly was more of a classic chartist, trend lines, super passionate about the markets. And and Joel Marvel was more into the sort of off the beaten path styles of analysis that he knew very well. So you're talking about like market profile and drumming geometry, which is a very big part of how I invest today. And it was just their passion for not just the markets, but their passion for technical analysis specifically is really what set my mind on the path. And I would credit that early experience to why I've really never deviated from it because I was able to watch them put it to work and make it work at such an early stage in my career. And to have them as mentors at such an early stage was you know, really important for me. Yeah. All right. Well, one more before we let you go. And that is, do you have any recommendations for our listeners on content that you're consuming? Books, podcasts, anything like that? I had mentioned three books earlier that I, the classics. So I'll just quickly say them again. It was Jesse Livermore's Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, Nicholas Darvis, How I Made $2 Million in the Market, which I mentioned. And Rusty, you said you had not read yet. Have you read it since? Because I've read it again since. I know. I think you're just going to have to send it to me. You know what? I will. I will. You, you have to read it. It's fantastic. I haven't. I was going to uh, also make sure I read Jesse Livermore every year after the last podcast, and I haven't reread that either. So I'm guilty on two things yeah. right now. I apologize. Well, every time you read it, it's going to be like the first time you read it. But in the case of Nicholas Darvis, it actually will be <laughs> the first time you read it. But then I would also throw in William O'Neill. I'm only re-mentioning them because they are classics. And clearly when I mention them, not everybody reads them. Right, Rusty? <laughs> but then, then, <laughs> then I would throw in three more. Again, these are books that I think can really change the way you think about investing in the markets. So Stocks on the Move by Andreas Klenau. He was one of our, I guess it was episode seven on our podcast. He's one of the foremost noted trend followers in the business today. In this book, it's Stocks on the Move. And he goes through this momentum strategy that anybody can implement. In fact, my younger son is implementing it while he's in school. But the last part of the book, he actually goes through and walks through through month by month the returns from this strategy. And that is the most valuable part of the book because you actually walk through those periods of drawdown where the strategy looks like it's like way off the mark and it's not working. And then, you know, just taking notes on it and explaining what's happening throughout the course of that back test is really what it's like as an investor. So it's one thing to see the equity line over time and get attracted to that strategy, but go ahead and implement it and then actually ride the ups and downs of the equity line. And it's the ability to do that without abandoning the strategy that really makes you a great investor over time. And that's what Andreas's book is all about. And then I would also throw in 
The Art of Execution by Lee Freeman Shore. I don't know if you've heard of this book, Rusty, but this is a great book about a gentleman who interviews and funds basically 10 really good investors and then just tries to learn about what it is that they do that makes them great investors. And I won't spoil it, but one of the ingredients that they all tend to possess, at least the ones that went on to do well in the book, was momentum. And also risk discipline, cutting your losses when you're wrong. So those two things really came through, but plus a whole bunch more in the book. And then because it's super pertinent to today and what just happened with the FTX exchange, I've had this book on my list of recommendations forever, but nobody ever listens to it, That's which is actually the name of the book. Nobody ever reads it because it's like, ah, that's just uh, some old fogey trying to tell me something that's never going to happen again. But here we go. The name of the book is No One Would Listen. And it's by a gentleman named Harry Markopoulos. And he wrote about Bernie Madoff and the whole story about how he brought to light how the whole thing was a fraud to the SEC in the year 2000. And then it took him until the year 2009 to prove that the whole thing was a fraud. And this includes people at the NASDAQ, people at the SEC who would not listen to the evidence that was staring them in the face, like, as an example, a 30-year-old kid interviewing potential money managers in his shorts, playing video games while having the interview, right? These are things that people just look past when they are just being lazy in their analysis and there's too much behavioral bias you know, in their decisions. And I think the part that people miss is that this is the reality of investing. This is unfortunately such a large part of what investing is about and it's just not taught in school. The only way you can learn it is to go through it. And one way to learn without going through it is to read a book like No One Would Listen because it really details in horrific evidence as to how it was clear this was a fraud, but nobody would listen. And this will happen again. FTX will not be the last time. Well, good recommendations. And I'm sure by the next time you come on the podcast, Rusty will have read everything on the list, (laughs) right? He'll be back on in 2025. (laughs) (laughs) all right well dave thanks so much for coming on the show and tell us how can listeners stay in touch and learn more about what you're doing at motor capital management and research yeah sure thing well thanks very much for having me on you can find me on twitter and on linkedin and you can also find me maybe we'll provide a link in the show notes but you can find me at my website as well and you can sign up for that charting my interruption free research comes out once a week so the website is m o t r c m r so motor capital management research.com and just head over there and there's a whole there's actually a tab on that website called philosophy and it's all free and it just kind of does a deep dive it's a sort of a mock interview on all the questions that I've received over the past 30 years about trend following and technical analysis I've taken all those questions and converted it into a mock interview that is really instructive and informative as to what technical analysis and trend following is all about and how you can pull it into your fundamentally oriented, you know, investment process. That's awesome. Well, Dave, this has been great. You know, some of the names you brought up and, you know, from technical data were great. And I remember thinking those guys used to be so old back then and they're way younger than (laughs) we are now. And, and talking about Harry and his book, like no one would listen. I mean, he used to come into my office when I worked at Fidelity years ago before he wrote that book, a very fascinating individual as well. You know, this podcast has been great. I can only imagine how much fun it would be though, if some of the hour long and multiple hour conversations we've had sitting like at a fine establishment like Maddie's or the Barnacle and Marblehead talking about the <laughs> yeah. markets you know, and where we actually got into some good intellectual collisions on some topics. That'd be a fun podcast sometime too. Actually, physically often, actually. (laughs) Maybe that's where our next recording should be at Maddie's. Mm. I know, exactly. That would definitely be a fun podcast. Yeah. Well, thanks, Dave. Appreciate your time, as always. Yeah, my pleasure, Rusty. Thanks again. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. 
Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And hey, if you like this episode, remember to subscribe. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Thanks again for listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion Advisor Solutions. First, we have the Wang the Risk podcast, which I host monthly. On behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence, this is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top-of-mind concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance, Dr. Daniel Crosby's Weekly Standard Deviations Podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. Last, when it comes to more content, including commentary, videos, and other resources, please check out the website, orionportfoliosolutions.com, go to the research drop-down menu, and go to the Financial Advisor Success Hub. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.